Good morning. Greeting in our Savior's name this morning. It's good to be here to worship again. I believe it was the 26th day of January when we last had opportunity to worship here on Sunday morning. So do seek an interest in your prayers as we look together at the Word of God once again today. We'll open with a question. Is God a relational God? Yes. How do you know that, Brother Mark? That's right, yes. I've had this vision for probably a little over a year now to preach a series of messages just going through the Bible and looking at relationships. Some marriage relationships, some parent-child relationships, some sibling relationships, and just move through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I began doing that, and then we were somewhat interrupted here by interruption in church schedule. But this morning I want to share with you uh, uh, a message that I've titled, Relationships, the Foundation of Life. And we'll look at God laying out the, some foundational principles for relationship and how He developed that to help us uh, and those who have gone before us to understand His heart and His desire to have relationship with us. So I invite you in your Bibles to Genesis, the first chapter. And I will begin reading at verse 26, Genesis 1, 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. <clears throat> and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, all the earth, and every tree in which is fruit, the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given you every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God came to the sixth day of His creation work, and He created something very different than anything else in the previous five days. He created something in His own likeness and His own image. And it wasn't just in His likeness and image. He said, let us create man in our likeness and our image, referring to Father, Son, and I believe the Holy Spirit as well because we have uh, body, soul, and spirit. And in that creating process, God created two types of people, male and female, compatible yet codependent upon each other. And out of that relationship, that husband-wife relationship, there would be conception, there would be fruitfulness, there would be multiplication of the human race. So another question for us. Was this God's idea or Adam's idea? This was God's idea. God was the one who knew what we needed long before we did or do. We'll go over to chapter 2. And we notice in chapter 2 and verse 20, that God and Adam are working together. And God gave, and Adam gave names to all the cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. 
And he took one of these ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the wife, and they were not ashamed. So do we find anywhere in Scripture that, that Adam filed a complaint with God and said, I've named all these animals, I've interacted with everything else in your creation, and I feel incomplete. There's something missing in my life. No, God looked upon that, and God recognized that, and He said, there's not a, a compatible companion for Adam. And Adam needed that one that he'd be codependent upon in his relationship here on the earth. And God created Eve, or a wife, for Adam. So it was God who recognized Adam's need. It's God who recognizes our need for a relationship. And He creates people, well, in our marriage, of course, our, our spouse. But outside of that, God also brings people into our lives to, to fulfill needs, to, to challenge us, to walk with us, and to uh, encourage us through relationship. And it was God who recognized this. And I believe that this being that, that God created for Adam far surpassed anything Adam could have asked for or even imagined. Because God knows our needs better than we. Because it says there at the end of that sixth day that God saw everything He had made and behold, it was very good. Up to the, the first five days, God said it was good. But on the sixth day, He said it was very good. God had set in order something He said is very good. Another evidence that God is a relational God is found over in the third chapter. I'm again reading at verse 8. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded thee thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me to, of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And I'll stop reading there. So you know what took place between chapter 2 and chapter 3 because Adam and Eve just confessed what they had done. But the point I want to pull out of this is the Scripture indicates that the presence of God came into the garden in the cool of the day and in that setting there would be communion. There would be relationship uh, expressed and felt between Adam and Eve and God. But when they had sin in their life and the presence of God came into the garden, Adam and Eve hid. There was no longer that open communication, that open relationship that they had become accustomed to. And I've often wondered, how, how long was it between creation and the fall? It would appear here that it was immediate, but we don't know. It may have been a period of time where they had sweet communion with God. We don't know that. And all this is just the beginning of God revealing His character and His desire to have relationship with us. We see... A relationship and lack of relationship in the lives of Cain and Abel and the way they related to each other. And at the root of their struggle was 
their relationship and lack of relationship with God. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. And out of that frustration in Abel's life and his choice not to obey God when God spoke to him and he told Cain, he said, Cain, if you do well, if you'll do what is right, you will be accepted. But instead of that, he turned his focus on his brother and his envy and his jealousy, and he took his brother's life. And we see God continuing from that point forward to be grieved over the sinfulness of mankind and the, and the broken relationship, the rack, lack of relationship, what could have been. And God spoke to Noah uh, when his heart was grieved with the sinfulness of the earth. And the Scripture tells us, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. A man who was righteous, a man who was seeking to walk with God. And we see God having a relationship with Noah and then with his descendants. And later we see God inviting Abram, who would later become Abraham, and inviting him to walk with him. And through his descendants that the Lord Jesus would be born. So we see God initiating that relationship as well. And throughout all that that time, the heart of God was grieved, but yet He never gave up. And I invite you to turn with me in the book of Hosea, the 11th chapter. And let's look at the, at the heart of God crying out for relationship lost and what could have been. Hosea chapter 11, the first four verses. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And I like that verse. How many times has God called His Son out of Egypt? <laughs> the children of Israel, the Lord Jesus, and He's still calling His children out of Egypt today. As they called them, they went out from them and they sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. And notice verse 3. I taught Ephraim also, taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, I was with them as they take off the yoke on their jaws. I laid meat into them. So we see God here saying, when Israel was a child, when he was young, I loved him. I called him out of Egypt. I took Ephraim also by the hands, teaching him to walk and walking beside him. Now verses 8 through 11. We see the heart of God grieving. He says, how can I give thee up, Ephraim? Oh, how shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adama? How shall I see thee as Zebulun? Mine heart is turned within me, my repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God, not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Lord, and he shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. And I'll stop reading there. But we see God expressing His heart. He's saying, I loved Israel. He was a child. I took Ephraim by the arms. I taught them to walk. They turned away from me. And in reality, I should destroy them for their sinfulness. But then in verse 8, He says, How can I give thee up, Ephraim? How can I do that to my chosen people? The heart of God yearning for a relationship that could have been and still could be, should they turn back to Him. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see God pursuing commitment and relationship from His chosen people. We go to the time of the judges. 
they would, uh, God would raise up a judge who would turn their hearts back toward God and they would be set free from their oppressors. Then they'd turn back to sin and God would allow them to be taken back into oppression again. Then we come to the time of the kings. The same cycle. Israel, turn away from God. God would allow hardship to come. They would cry out to Him. He would forgive them, bring them back. Coming back and falling away. Coming back and falling away again and again. So I'd like for us to think now a bit about relationship. What is it at the heart of relationship that we desire? And I've, I'll present it where the conclusion I've came to. At the heart of relationship is motive. And that motive is to love and to be loved. To accept and to be accepted. It's what we yearn for. The greatest pain that we can feel as humanity is to be rejected and to feel unloved and unaccepted. So if the heart of relationship is love, then we need to understand both the source of love and the expression of love. And I'd like to go to the New Testament to consider that, the book of 1 John. To consider the source of love and the expression of love. 1 John, the fourth chapter. We'll drop in at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. And he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son to the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I'll stop reading there at verse 11 for the time being. Now I'm actually going to read verse 16 already. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So verse 16 here has the foundational principle for us. God is love. So at the heart of our motivation for relationship is a desire to love and to be loved. And the scripture tells us that God is love. Now notice verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. So God is love, and then love is of God. Therefore, we must first know God in order to know what love is. We see that in verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So how do we understand the source of love? Or we do understand the source of love. God is love and love is of God. What then is the expression of love? Is it in feeling? What is the expression of love? We find that in verse 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son of the world that we might live through Him. 
And I had never seen this verse in that light before until I began studying on this subject. It says, in this was manifested the love of God. And a manifestation is an expression of something. So the love of God is expressed to us in His keeping of His promise of sending His only begotten Son into the world so that through Him we might have eternal life. We might live through Him. Not only in eternity, but now. In Christ, we have life. Crucified the Christ, nevertheless I live. Not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live. By the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. That is life. And God has manifested to us His love for us in sending His Son. We find that promise all the way back. We could go back again to Genesis, the third chapter, and find that promise of a Redeemer. And many promises to follow that. I meant to start out this morning in Romans 5, or 15, I mean. And I missed that part. But I'd like to go to Romans 15 right now. Notice an interesting... Uh, some interesting words and phrases here in Romans 15. And what the point I want to pull out of the first number of verses here in Romans 15 is in verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. This verse tells us that the the entire Scripture, the Old Testament, the narrative, the history, everything that's there, God has preserved for a specific purpose is for us to learn and to know Him and for us to learn and to understand how to walk with Him and to learn from the Scripture. I find it interesting, the Scripture doesn't hide any aspect of humanity. The good, the bad, the ugly. We see it all in Scripture. God doesn't hide what... We are and what we can be, both in Him and apart from Him. But the word that I want to pull out here in verse 4 is the word patience. The word patience here means steadfastness, consistency, and endurance. So it's through God's patience and through us understanding the patience of God, which is the consistency, the steadfastness, and the endurance, we learn to know what the love of God is and the basis for relationships in our lives. So we see the Scripture telling us that the evidence of God's love is in keeping His promise to send the Savior to the world, His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we think about it, we can love those whom we trust. We can love everyone through the power of God. But it's when we have deep trust in others that love can really be nurtured and grow. And we know we can trust God because He keeps His promises. I haven't counted them, but I'm told there are over 3,000 promises in the Bible. And God has either fulfilled every one of them, or He is and He will. So the conclusion then must be that the ultimate expression 
of godly love is not in filling, it is in commitment. And it is in commitment that is kept. And I'll repeat that. So we must conclude then that the ultimate expression of godly love is found in commitment and in commitment that is kept. And I challenge you to take that concept home with you and wrestle with it in the days and weeks, months, or maybe even years to come. Consider God's patience with His people throughout the Old Testament and yet today. There were, more than, there were several times when Moses fell on his face for 40 days and 40 nights and implored God not to destroy the children of Israel. And he reasoned with God, if you want to paint with a broad brush, he reasoned with God that God would remember the commitments he made and keep them. He said, what, what were the, the Egyptians say when they say, well, God, you just brought these people out here to destroy them? He's saying, God, you made a commitment to these people. And God did. He relented. He kept His commitment to the children of Israel. The judges, the kings, all through those times, God kept His commitment, even as His heart was deeply grieved by their actions. Yet, God in His justice could not overlook their sin, and He allowed them to suffer for their sin, but He kept His commitment of love to them. I'm thinking about Jesus in the New Testament. The twelve disciples. They argued. They doubted. They denied. His twelve closest friends, earthly friends, betrayed. John 13 was one reads as follows, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world into the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, he showed that He loved them unto the end. Another translation said He showed them the full extent of His love. So we see there in our, in our feet washing passage that we often use, feet washing. Jesus expressed His love in keeping His commitment to them even when they did not keep their commitments to Him. He loved them to the end. And yes, there was filling. We'll get to that. God expressed His filling for Ephraim, when we, and we've seen that in Hosea chapter 11. Jesus expressed His fillings as He wept over Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stoneth them that are sent to you, how often would I have gathered you under my, as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under His wing? There was deep filling in Jesus' life as He wept over Jerusalem, as He, as he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Deep filling. But undergirding those feelings was his unwavering commitment. Love based on feelings alone will soon dissipate and grow cold when the object of our love disappoints us. And we all disappoint those around us. We all disappoint God, I know, I'm sure. But love based on commitment will not dissipate and grow cold with time. And the beautiful truth is that as we, as we nurture love through commitment, that commitment will initiate and nurture feeling. And those feelings will grow as they are nurtured, as commitments are kept. It's, 
recently I've participated in a number of weddings, married a number of folks, have another one coming up on Saturday. And I'm impressed as I, as I go through those, those marriage, the marriage formula and the commitments, there's very little about filling in those commitments. But there's a lot about commitment. To love, to cherish, to nurture, to keep yourself only unto this person until death does part. There's commitment. Not a lot about filling. But as those commitments are kept, the fillings grow. And there's no, there's no limit to how much those fillings can grow. Because love is of God. God is love and love is of God. And we know that there's no limit to the love of God. And we experience love then when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And if there's no limit to the amount of love that God can shed abroad in our hearts, then I don't believe there's a limit on how much we can grow in our love for our fellow human beings. So just as God shows His love by making and keeping His commitments, we also experience godly love by making and keeping commitments. First of all, in our relationship with God. And as a result of that, then we can grow our relationship with others. We have capacity to love because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. So in conclusion, here in John chapter 1 again, chapter uh, 1 John, excuse me, go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and dropping down to verses 10 through 21. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed that the love God hath to us, God is love. And He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Therein is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. And he that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him, because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, he that loveth God, love his brother also. So God is a relational God. The motivation and expression of a godly relationship is love. God is the source of love. And one cannot truly know real love without first knowing God. And one cannot truly express godly love without to some degree, expressing something of the character of God as we express love, the love of God that flows out of our lives. 
So true expression of godly love is in commitments and commitments that are kept. Then feelings of love are developed and nurtured unto growth. And that is how relationships grow. And that is how we experience purpose and fulfillment in life. A life without fulfilling relationships is a difficult life, an empty life, full of voids and holes. And humanity attempts to fill it with something other than God. And as I thought about these concepts, in contrast to the society in which we live, we live in a society that as a whole has no concept of what true love really is. Society promotes the idea that love is a feeling that comes and goes. It's astounding that the highest, divorce, the highest rate of divorce right now is in people that are my age, the empty nesters. It's actually going down somewhat amongst the younger marrieds. But people are finding out that as their children, the last child moves off to college or marriage or wherever, and they no longer are running to soccer practice and all the other things they did to fill their time, that there's a void in the home they have not nurtured and developed a relationship with their spouse. So the middle-aged people are divorcing at a greater rate now than younger married couples. Society grows the idea that when the feeling goes, you leave with it. Society believes that love is an avenue to self-gratification. And self-gratification is always lust and not love. Satan, the father of lies, says, Love is for my pleasure and my gratification. Lust. So this morning, are we experiencing purpose, peace, fulfillment, and contentment in our lives, in our relationships? If not, we need to examine our relationship first to God and then to our fellow human beings who are created in God's likeness and image. Because relationships are built upon love. And love is expressed in commitments and commitments that are kept. May the Lord add His blessing.